Hi everyone, Droop Road here with another hit episode of the Broken Brain Podcast. Today we have nutritional therapist and functional medicine practitioner Angelique Panagos taking us through a super honest conversation around so many topics that society tells us are taboo and that we shouldn't, that we should not be discussing, which by the way is total BS. Today, Angelique walks us through her personal history of experiencing and overcoming eating disorders, hormonal imbalances, and her history of miscarriages. Because we don't often have an open and honest conversation about these topics, many people can think that they or their partner are the only ones suffering through these challenges. And yet these health conditions I listed earlier are more common than most people know. You know, it's estimated that 15 to 20% of all women will experience a miscarriage in their life. That between 5 to 10% of women in the Western world have PCOS. That one in seven women may experience postpartum depression after giving birth. And that 30 million people of all ages and genders suffer from an eating disorder and that's in the United States alone. That's almost 10% of the total population. It's time to start talking about these topics honestly and frankly. And I want to thank Angelique for having the courage to open up with her story so that others listening can find hope through what she's been through and maybe even find some inspiration behind the root causes of their symptoms. For today's podcast, we follow a slightly different format than past episodes. I really have Angelique take her time to tell her story, but in the process of telling her story, she is so amazing at inserting a ton of practical tips, insights, and reflections that will leave you with a much deeper understanding. Now, a little bit about Angelique. Angelique runs a busy private practice specializing in hormonal health, stress management, weight management, and digestive health. Her first book, The Balance Plan, Six Steps to Optimizing Your Hormonal Health, was published in July 2017. After experiencing her own issues with PCOS, hyperthyroidism, a miscarriage, and more, she is determined to helping women solve their hormonal imbalances. Angelique is on a mission to educate women about hormones and how to balance them. Angelique completed her nutritional therapy training at the Institute of Optimum Nutrition in London. She's registered and regulated by the British Association of Applied Nutritional and Nutritional Therapy and is a member of the Complementary and Natural Healthcare Council. Angelique is also proud to have completed the Institute for Functional Medicine, AFMCP in the UK, which is the Introduction to Functional Medicine, and is currently pursuing her certification with the Institute of Functional Medicine. Now, to start off our interview, I asked Angelique to talk about something super practical, which is to help us understand the relationship between having too much sugar in our diet and how that can impact our hormonal health. What's the relationship between sugar and hormones? I think for a lot of people, they know, okay, great, sugar can contribute to inflammation. They know these other areas, but I don't know if they've exactly fully understood the relationship between sugar and hormonal health, especially, I mean, both for men and women, Mm. but especially how does it affect women? And I think that you said something really important there, both men and women, because I think when we talk about hormones, it's most of us probably just think about women, but men have these hormones as well. And what we're looking at now is if we're having these elevated uh, sugar, blood sugar spikes, when we eat the sugar, it's broken down really quickly in the body and we get this blood sugar high and the body kicks into gear because it needs to keep everything in balance and 
insulin, another hormone is secreted from the pancreas, and that insulin grabs the blood sugar, this is very simply put, sticks it into the cells and sticks a little bit into the storage uh, units like muscles and liver. But if we keep having these spikes, these highs and lows of insulin, they're called hyperinsulinemia, that's having a really, or I feel it's having a catastrophic effect on our hormonal health. And what it does with this high insulin, it can stimulate the ovaries to produce more testosterone. And what it can also do is it increases something called aromatase, which converts testosterone to estrogen. And it also decreases sex hormone binding globulin, which I call my sheepdogs, which keeps the free testosterone and free estrogen at bay. So what that looks like in symptoms terms is we could be having more acne, we could have more hair loss on our heads, we could have more, um, could be more irritable, agitated, angry, more weepiness, sadness, low mood, irregular periods, weight around the middle and hip area, puffiness, that water retention, and insomnia. So it can lead to a lot of these hormonal symptoms that we experience. And let's take one of those and kind of break it down a little bit further, because when our hormones are unbalanced, it can have so many different reverberations in our body. You know, yeah. it, it can have so many different effects. One that's uh, very timely right now is let's talk about PCOS. It's PCOS mm. Awareness Month. You've been posting a lot on Instagram to draw awareness to it. Many people don't understand what PCOS is. And even the ones who do understand, they don't often know what could cause it or what things could contribute to PCOS developing for mm. a woman. So help us break it down. What is PCOS and um, what's its relationship to hormones and of course our larger diet and wellness? So um, PCOS is a polycystic ovary syndrome and it's a common endocrine disorder. And it's actually such a common disorder that we it's about approximately one in five women have polycystic ovaries. And the thing with polycystic ovaries is it's not just an ovary condition. It actually affects the whole body system. And how it is identified or described is a collection of small bead-like cysts around the outer edge of the ovaries. And how it is diagnosed is through a scan, as well as if you have elevated levels of testosterone, for example, or amenorrhea, where you haven't menstruated for three months plus. And, but as I said, it's not just something that happens in the ovaries. It causes imbalances in all the organs as well. So in your pituitary, in your thyroid, in your adrenals and the pancreas. And the exact cause of polycystic ovaries, the answer to that is entirely sure. The jury is still out as to what the exact cause is. But there is a strong body of evidence that shows that it's a combination of genetic and environmental factors. And many researchers show that it is caused by an excess of insulin production in the body. And that insulin production leading to excess testosterone. So it's driven by this overproduction of insulin and overproduction of androgen testosterone. So the male hormone. And the condition itself, you know, if we're looking at insulin resistance alone, then that can lead to type 2 diabetes, for example. So when we're looking at polycystic ovaries, we, we need to look at the body as a whole and to see what's going on. And there's a lot that we can do diet and lifestyle-wise to help to, I call it thriving with polycystic ovaries, to actually get you to a point where your blood results aren't showing that you have polycystic ovaries. 
so you can actually get yourself into that state again of your readings actually not showing or depicting polycystic ovaries. So that's how powerful what we eat and the lifestyle that we lead is. When it remains present inside the body Mm -hmm. and some of the root issues are not addressed with and somebody's living with PCOS, what are the implications that can happen when it it comes to normal functioning and fertility and and other areas? Um, So when we're looking at polycystic ovaries or having the condition, like having had polycystic ovaries myself, I didn't know much about it. And the reason why I kept going back to the doctor was because I wasn't having a period. I was only menstruating every 90 plus days. And at first I thought that was normal, but then something, and there was like this voice inside me that was saying that this is not normal. We should be menstruating. But even though you have polycystic ovaries, it doesn't mean that you'd have all the symptoms that go with it. And some ladies don't have any of the symptoms. So just because you fit into the polycystic ovaries box doesn't mean that you're going to have all the symptoms that go with it. But it can be amenorrhea, and that's where your periods are missing in action. You've got three months plus with no period, or they are irregular. So you've got long gaps between your period. You could have acne, a hirsutism that's with hair growing on your face, um, weight gain, especially around the middle, and then difficulty in falling pregnant and difficulty in staying pregnant. And difficulty in falling pregnant is due to ovulation and difficulty in staying pregnant could be due to possibly having low progesterone. So I myself had two miscarriages. I struggled to get pregnant, then I struggled to stay pregnant. So I I can totally relate to, um, to women going through this fertility journey. But it's about really arming yourself with all the knowledge that you can about polycystic ovaries and looking at your lifestyle and diet and seeing the change that you can make. Let's talk about your story a little bit further. And thank you for being so open and transparent about what you're going through. And I know you talk a lot about what you went through. And I know you talk a lot about that on on social media and your articles on your website, all with the attempt of, of helping people. You know, a lot of in practitioners and people that we have in this podcast got into functional medicine and wellness and helping people because of their own journey and story. So take us back a little bit further. How did you come to this place of even recognizing that your hormones were out of balance? And then what was the turning point that took you down the path to start to look for answers in a different way? Absolutely. And I feel that I'm on this mission to share my story because I felt so alone when I was going through everything. I thought, God, it's just me. I thought, am I going crazy? Like, this can't be how like everyone else seems to be absolutely fine with their periods and um, everyone else seems to be absolutely fine with their mood and it's just me. So I feel like that is definitely one of the, the strong reasons why I share so much about the story to give people that hope that they can get past their symptoms and that also that understanding that unity as humans, we've, we're tribal and to be able to find their tribe, that they're not alone in what they're going through. And my journey, if I think about my hormones, it started right when I was really young. Like I'm the girl that started menstruating at 10 years old. The rest of my friends, they started 15 years old. So I was like the first one. It was a horrible affair right from the beginning and it just never got better. This is the problem. It just never got any better as my, I had to go home from school due to nausea and cramps and Then later years from work, I had migraines, headaches, pimples, weight gain, you know, as my age increased, so did my waistline. And I was just always on some form of a diet. I had insomnia, my hair was thinning. I just felt like I was this 
hormonal mess. And I knew that it was around that time of my period as well where things would get even worse until I got to the point where my periods were just just non-existent. They just weren't there. And I think that's when I started realizing that this can't possibly be how everyone is. So there needs to be something that's going on with me. And it was a friend of mine, bless her, it came from a really good place. I was on my period and I was feeling absolutely rotten. I had to go home from work. And she said to me, you know what, all women in childbearing years have a period. Why is yours so bad? And that was one of the things that made me think, yeah, I need to look into this. But it was a journey because I was met with a lot of resistance from the uh, medical doctors that I'd gone to at that time. I didn't quite fit in with the with I didn't quite fit into the box at that stage. I felt that I wasn't heard a lot of the time as well. And that's what got me into into nutrition and looking at what I was eating because I saw what a massive effect it had on my body when I was depriving myself of food. So when I went through anorexia uh, and then when I was binging on food through binge eating disorder, what the differences of that was doing in my body and how I was feeling. And so just just to understand, because I know our, it's, it's always nice to empathize and, and understand a little bit more. So the eating disorder that you had, mm. did that come after you started to make changes or did you grow up having an eating disorder? So I grew up in a Greek-Italian home in sunny South Africa. So that gave me the license to eat and I ate a lot. And um, so I feel like I'd, I was always an emotional eater. So um, if I was sad, I would definitely eat. But then it became to a point where I was a happy eater as well. So there was just no change. No matter what emotion there was, there was always food involved for me. But it was I got to a point when I was about 18, 19, when I was really partying like a rock star. And I was up all night drinking and then eating during the day, lots of sugary foods to keep me going and lots of caffeine. And my weight just increased a lot. And that whole saying of the genes load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. In my environment there was extremely unhealthy and I decided I would lose weight for the last time and that's what led me into, I actually became vegan for a while and then that led into orthorexia. I didn't I didn't have a name then. I would only eat what I thought was healthy. And, 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 if, you that, and if you don't mind me interrupting, why, yeah. why vegan? Did you read a book? Did somebody tell yeah. you something? Like what led to that path? So I saw an article, I remember it now, I'm trying to remember what magazine it was, it was in South Africa, I saw an article about if you cut out meat, then you will lose weight. I remember that clearly. And so I thought, well, that's what I have to do now. I need to cut out meat. And I was basically living on like an apple and drinking soda water by the end of it. That's how bad it got. So um, I can't remember the exact details, but it was definitely an article and it was all about if you cut out meat because you're cutting out fat and then you become vegan and then you'll lose weight. But what happened was I cut out meat, but I was still eating like fried potatoes. So I was still right. eating chips. <laughs> you know? So it was really unhealthy. So I was really an unhealthy vegan. Uh, so the weight kept going up and that's when it led into orthorexia because then I thought, no, hang on. I left the veganism and I went into just eating steamed fish and cutting out all types of fats. So it was like low fat yogurt, steamed fish. And then as it went on, my repertoire of foods became less and the amount that I was eating became less. And um, I had read somewhere that lemons will help burn the fat in your body. So I was squeezing 10 lemons a day and drinking that. It was really unhealthy. I, I think back and I feel so sad for my younger self, having gone through that and 
it becomes a very lonely place as well. You hide it a lot. So it's very secretive and it's not a nice space to be in. What do you think the biggest misconceptions are about that people who have never been through an eating disorder, what do you think their biggest misconception is about people who are going through eating disorders? Maybe they have no willpower to stop doing what they're doing. Or that if they just simply found the willpower, they could fix the whole situation. I mean, that's what I thought when I was going through it. Because, I mean, that led into bulimia as well. So, you know, orthorexia, anorexia, bulimia, I was excessively exercising. And, you know, there was a lot of times where I just thought, get a grip. Like, you do not need to be doing this. It, It cannot be. This is not healthy. I'd lost so much weight, you know, that I'd developed this fine hair on my body and a friend likened me to to a cartoon, like big head, big shoes and little body. You know, as I was looking, you could visibly see that there was something that was, you know, that I was abusing my body in that way. So, um, but I, I think, and the, you know, I can't say because I don't think I ever thought about it before I went through it. And now that I've been through it, it's really difficult for me to think what other people may be thinking about it. But while I was in it, I thought, my God, I need the willpower to stop this. What is wrong with me? What was... The series of events, knowledge, information, circumstances, books that took you out of that journey and brought that balance into your life. So from that, I actually, something just switched in my brain and I went from that state of starving myself into the complete opposite and straight into binging. And I mean, I had to lie on the floor due to stomach cramps. So it was binging and purging and it was in that phase there where my parents took me to see a nutritionist in South Africa in South Africa and she she gave me a plan to follow but she gave me a plan that had grams of food so that wasn't the best plan for me but the the thought to help me was there um it, it gave me like different grams and because of what I was going through you know I was cutting the grams down as well so it wasn't the best plan for me at the time but I remember thinking at that point is that I want to get better because I want to do what she does. I want to I want to help people. And the real catalyst, and it's, you know, I, I'm smiling as I say it because this was quite a selfish reason for me to get into what I do because I really just wanted to fix myself. And then I thought if I could fix myself, I'd be in the best possible position to fix others. And I use the word fix because I really felt broken. And that was really what spurred me on into reading. I think I bought every single book and then led me to actually deciding to study. It sounds like it was a few days. It was a long journey over many years. It was only by the age of 27 that I started studying. But it was during that studying that I actually started really getting a handle on everything. And it was understanding what blood sugar does in the body. And it was understanding that I don't have a period. And, you know, that fertility isn't just about having a baby. It's about functioning as a woman every month, having a period during your childbearing years. And... I look back at that moment where I realized that and I look back at that with pride really because I feel like that was the real catalyst into getting me to do what I do today and I'm so grateful for the journey that I've been through. I really, it may sound tree huggy but I'm really grateful for everything that I've been through because it gives me a lot of understanding to be able to work with others and it gives me a lot of understanding to be able to help my daughter not go through what I've been through as well. What were some of the first major shifts that you made when you developed this understanding about blood sugar and insulin and it sounds like a few other things that were there and then how did you start to see that show up in your body and how did you start to see that show up in your hormones 
So at that stage, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's as well. So um, that's why I say the genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. So I was predisposed to hypothyroidism. Many of my family members have it. My mum also has it. And um, my environment of partying like a rock star and then starving my body and then binging really created this hormonal storm, this perfect this perfect environment for something like Hashimoto's to thrive in. And unfortunately, it was only discovered it had already led to hypothyroidism. And, and just for those that are not familiar with Hashimoto's, of course, we talked about in the Broken Brain series, we've mentioned a little bit, just, just give a little bit of a breakdown of Hashimoto's. So ha- Absolutely. So Hashimoto's is a autoimmune condition in where your immune system attacks your thyroid. So therefore, it's not just a thyroid condition anymore. It actually is an immune system issue as well. And when we're looking at a condition like Hashimoto's, it can first give you into this hyperthyroid state, so this elevated thyroid state, and then it can go crashing down into hypothyroid, which is an underactive thyroid. And if you are suffering from any thyroid symptoms, I'd really urge you to get tested with your antibodies as well. Find out if it is Hashimoto's with the thyroid. Now, in addition to everything else that you're going through, you got diagnosed with Hashimoto's. And you yeah. take us from there. So I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and I was put on thyroid replacement therapy. And so at that point, so what made me really like really bang on the doctor's door saying, help me, please. I had no energy. I had terrible brain fog. I was losing chunks of information. I wasn't able to retain new information. I had insomnia. I was cold all the time. My hair was falling out. And um, I had like, even gritty eyes. I remember my eyes were always so dry. So there was, I was definitely wasn't feeling optimal. <laughs> it's definitely not how a young lady should be feeling, a young person should be feeling. And, and, so, and if you don't mind me asking, mm-hmm. were you still having patterns of the eating disorders at this time? Or? So I was still having moments of binging up, yep. And the purging was a lot less at this stage. I had read an article that if you carried on purging, it could lead to throat cancer. Wow. And that was that was enough for me at that point. I've never actually looked into it any further. That was enough to scare me into to not purging, um, which didn't help the not binging. I thought it might have, but no, it didn't help the not binging. But I was already at that point. So it was, yeah, exactly what you said there. So I was having periods of these binges. And then from the binges, it would go into periods of, of not eating, so avoiding food by all costs, not even going near the kitchen just so that I wouldn't eat. And then, so when the doctor diagnosed me with that, they gave me the thyroid medication. And then I noticed that they said to me, I should start feeling a whole lot better. And what happened was I started feeling slightly better. I was still constipated. I don't know if I've thrown that into the mix as well. So just feeling horrible. And then I realized that I need to make a change in my lifestyle. I need to make a change to see the change. I can't just be taking the medication and just think everything is just going to change miraculously because that's what we think, isn't it? We, we've been fed this quick fix mentality model for a long time. And, you know, the adverts are all geared at, if you know, if you've got a pain, take a pill, it will go away. Mm. But, you know, there was something in, intuitive within me that thought it can't just be the pill. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't making me feel a whole lot better. It was making me feel slightly better. And it was when I started diving further into that and, you know, making those lifestyle changes 
that's when I started seeing that this tablet that I was taking was now working so much better within my body. And that's where we're looking at it from a functional approach. So take us back to that, because your story, mm. obviously, you know, in hindsight, everything looks mm, like it all fell. Hindsight's amazing. In, yeah, hindsight's amazing. It all <laughs> fell into place. Of course, you've been great by telling us that this was over many years and it was many a years. journey. And I think that's a great reminder for people who are listening, who are dealing with their own health issues, is that, you know, we have people on this podcast who got better in some way. And many of them have been very transparent about the things that we're all dealing with something, right? We're all dealing with some mm. component that we're working on. It's whether or not we found peace with it. That's often the question and yeah. continue to dive into it. But this was quite a journey from you. I mean, from the time that you were younger, when some of these patterns were developing, I mean, already right now, just in the story, we've talked about a span of probably 15 years. Right? Mm. Mm. And so, so at, at this time, Paint a picture for us. So you mm. were on the medication and then you started yeah. to make some changes in your lifestyle. What mm. what happened? Did you did you read something? What what came so into I, your world that gave you this different approach that I'm gonna think about food and my relationship to it in, in a different way? Yeah, so I'm actually glad you've said that because it's reminded me of the next step that I took. So I went to go and see a nutritional therapist in the UK. And Again, it ignited this passion within me to want to be doing what she does. And I thought, well, in order to be able to get better, I need to go and study what she studied. I need to understand what she studied. That was a big catalyst for me as well. And uh, that's when I actually, three months later, I had enrolled, and which I did for four years. And it was through that that I actually learned the tools and the hacks. I call them hacks because, you know, modern life is busy. Modern life is crazy busy at the moment. We're all whizzing around like heads with legs. And I needed to to find these consistent lifestyle changes that I could bring into my lifestyle and create a new lifestyle. So so that's what it was for me. It was actually going back to school and, and studying. And I think the biggest key for me at that stage, and you know, it's the foundation, what I feel with hormonal balance is to balance your blood sugar levels and to get a handle on that. So you must have been at a very mm. progressive school. We've had other nutritionists on the podcast for, you know, from the States and traditional nutrition therapy school often is just reinforcing a lot of things that you hear in sort of mainstream. But it sounds like you had a very progressive school that was bringing in other concepts and, and, mm. and ideas. Was that the case? Yeah, so um, I studied at the Institute for Optional Nutrition and that uses a functional medicine approach. Incredible. So we're looking at the root cause as opposed to the symptom. And that just made sense to me. I mean, I feel like I was always meant to do it because it, it just made sense. There was no resistance to it. For me, it was you need to fix the underlying cause to be able to to work out what's going on. You need to investigate the underlying cause to be able to, to know what's going on. And I love the in functional medicine, we talk about the tree and it's so true. If the roots aren't good, you're not going to have fruit on your tree. So you need to be doing, you need to be looking at the root cause of what's going on. And that's what the difference between the replacement model and the functional and a functional model looks at. Um, and in order, and I really feel like if you are on medication, then you really need to be doing the lifestyle and the diet part as well, because that's really going to help to just, just make a better environment for that medication to work. So you're in school, you're learning about these concepts. Did you mm. immediately start to make changes in your lifestyle, in your diet? And then what did you physically, what did you start to see? And how did all these things that you had, quote unquote, collected over the years, the, the mm. Hashimoto's, the, you know, these other issues, the constipation, 
break it down for us of when you started making these changes and how they, you know, did you notice that they got better and what got better first? So, um, Again, it was a, a series of changes that I made, and there were many times where I just slipped back into old habits. And it was very easy to get back into the whole old habits, especially when you're tired, when you're stressed. It's very easy to go back into them. And um, so it was a series of consistent changes. But the big thing for me was taking out sugar. That was a major thing for me. And I honestly, you know, I feel that I was addicted to eating sugar. I used to night feed where I'd wake up in the morning and there were wrappers of chocolates and sweets next to my bed. And I'd be like, so I, I'm sort of conscious that I ate them, but I like, why did I make that decision to do it? And I'd phone my mum with like wrappers, empty chocolate wrappers in my hand. And I'm like, well, I definitely walked into the shop to buy them. So am I going crazy? Like what is happening to me? So it was a real journey. And I think that's where I can really work with my clients in that because I've been through it. I understand that you know, it's, you're not going to just change everything in one day. And I think that's really important to understand that you didn't get your symptoms in one day and it's not going to take one day to fix them either. And um, so for me, initially, it was taking out sugar and alcohol and caffeine. I used to drink eight cups of coffee a day. Wow. Yeah. When did I have time to do that? Um, <laughs> honestly. Um, so, and again, I needed to do that slowly because taking out coffee gave me horrendous headaches. I felt like absolute death. I just felt terrible. So I just started drinking coffee again to make myself feel better. And then I realized that I needed to wean myself off of it. And then from there, it moved into going from excessive exercising into moderate exercise. That was another big one. And and what did you learn that had you do that shift? Because I think that that's something that still people are unpacking here. What What's the challenge mm. with excessive exercise and the relationship with our health and our hormones? And especially if we're looking at this fast-paced world that we live in, and it's very difficult when you're in that mode to to kill it in the gym. You're in there every day and you are working it. You are there for an hour plus every day. I mean, I used to wake up and run on the beach uh, when we lived in South Africa and then go to the gym in my break at work and then go again in the evening. Like totally unnecessary to be going that many times a day going to put that out there if you are not a competitive athlete then you know you need to be doing healthy amounts of exercise and I say that because if you are excessively exercising it actually undoes the goodness that exercise can do the healthy part with regards to hormones it can actually cause elevated cortisol so your stress hormone and elevated testosterone and with a condition like polycystic ovaries you're just making that condition that much worse. So if you're in the gym and you're exercising, but your belly fat is not going and you're not losing any weight, then we need to look at, are you excessively exercising? And what we then want to do is we want to switch that into more of a still movement, still getting movement in, but then we want to look at more of restorative exercise like yoga, Pilates, going for long walks in nature in the bright light, uh, as opposed to this cardiovascular exercise. But on that point as well, Research is really showing us that these quick bursts of exercise, so this HIIT training, is really having a positive effect on our hormonal health. Amazing. Your story is, is just so incredible that I think, you know, sometimes, again, we hear a story, it's summarized in like a two-minute thing, and we miss it out on all the details, especially with mm-hmm. hormones being a big part of your area that you focus on in helping yeah. people in general. Of course, men can learn so much from it. But in these different conditions, I love unpacking it and I love getting into the detail of it because 
it's the realness. It takes time. These are the changes. We have to be gentle with ourselves. And you know, your story is is one inspiration. Everybody's going to have their own journey, but it's nice. I think people feel a little bit of hope and they like relax a little bit and some of that anxiety goes away and we're integrating in like the practical tips along the way which you're so good at doing so okay so continue the journey from there okay. so you 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 went from excessive exercise to moderate exercise and you just explained moderate the reasons exercise. for that and then what what else was next so then it was really looking at what was on my plate and so I'd taken out the sugar, I'd taken out the caffeine, I'd taken out the alcohol, much to lots of my friends' disappointment, because they were like, oh, drunk Angelique is so much fun. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> she hey, is, I know. <laughs> it's, it's funny that you say that, but it's also such a thing that people have, and it goes into this sort of like emotional side of yeah. we feel that without this crutch of alcohol we don't have as much fun and our social circle is used to it uh, i want to just pause on that for a second you know your friends said that but was it mm -hmm. also real that they didn't want to hang out with you as much like what was the real aspect of kind of when you change your plate and you're deciding not to drink as much as one example did it affect your social community i think initially no but in the long run, my social community has probably changed. But that's what happens with friendships as well. You know, they're quite fluid and your your circle changes. Your core probably stays the same uh, a lot of the time. But as you grow, as as you expand, then you, you probably find new relationships as well. I think that it, definitely some of the invitations got less. But that could have been the fact that I was also going to less things. In the beginning, it was absolutely fine. But now I'm at this point where I'm like, wow, past 11, 12 o'clock where people are on their third, fourth tequila. It's not as much fun for me anymore. Hmm. So because I don't quite know what you're talking about and I'm not on that same level. So then I'll probably retreat at that point. Um, saying that, though, I do love to dance. I'm probably the last one on the dance floor. So maybe I don't retreat that much. But I feel like I probably went out less as well. I also stopped smoking. I forgot to mention that I used to smoke. Um, so I also stopped smoking. And was this so in then, the same timeline? Um, same timeline. And was so, it, had uh, you tried to stop smoking before? No, but uh, it was really, for me, it was really easy. I know that many people struggle to give up smoking. For me, it was simply a case of, I don't think I really enjoyed it that much, to be honest. It was really a case of just deciding that I was going to stop. That was the easiest thing. Sugar, alcohol, and coffee were the hardest. Mm. And fried chips. <laughs> they were really hard. So I used to really love some fries. But um, I think I scared people at that point because now I was going to change. And I also scared myself around that time because when I went through the anorexia, I cut out everything as well. And I, I actually became this really reclusive, sad person. But that's because a whole lot of other things were going on. This time as I was journeying through this period, I was doing it for different reasons. And I'm not saying... You need to cut out all alcohol and you may not have any caffeine to balance your hormone. But what I am saying is that if you have been having a lot of caffeine and a lot of alcohol through the years, then we need to look at what you've done in the last six months, years, two years and see what we can change to see if that makes a difference. So, and, you know, there's a lot of research that has been done on big groups of women where they have PMS symptoms and those that are having caffeine and alcohol, their PMS symptoms are that much worse. So, you know, when we start looking at things like that, then we have to ask ourselves the question, would we be willing to make that change to see if biochemically it works for us or not? It's and, almost like um, some of the actions that you took looked similar, 
But the difference is now you were empowered with the education and your motivation was completely different in completely terms of cutting different. those things out. And you had a I was gonna say and I was eating a better diet at that point. I mean it wasn't I was still there was still a lot to be done at that point, but it, things had already started to shift. So the last place that you were taking us on the journey is that, you know, cutting out mm. smoking. Would love to continue yeah. from there and the next steps and and what you started to see show up in your life after taking those measures. And then I started looking at the importance of protein and fat. So at that point, I was still low-fat everything. And I'd taken out the sugar, but I was still having diet colas and stuff at that point. And then I really started looking at how hormones are made in the body. And I was absolutely shocked that it actually comes from fat, your sex hormones and your stress hormones, that LDL cholesterol, so what's dubbed as your bad cholesterol, is actually the foundation, along with other triglycerides, to make up your hormones. And I was low-fat everything. You know, olive oil barely featured in my diet. I wouldn't eat avocados because, you know, they're fattening. These are the messages that I'd been fed and that I'd believed and I'd taken on as my own messages as well. Yeah, as, so, um, uh, as Dr. Hyman likes to say, you thought that the fat that passed your lips ended up on your hips. But that wasn't absolutely. the case. Was, and absolutely. can you remember back to that time? Was that mind-blowing for you? Like you're in school and learning about this? And like, can you think back to that time period? And, you know, what were the sensations that you felt? Did you feel upset that people had lied to you? Did you feel like, you know, oh, my God, this is crazy. How does the world not know this? I need to be on a mission. Like what was the kind of combination <laughs> of emotions that you were feeling when you found that out? I was like, oh my gosh, my Italian side of the family were absolutely right. Olive oil is king. No, it came back in all full circle. <laughs> yeah. In all seriousness, I felt angry and I felt terrified, terrified of eating fat. I was a total fatophobe. I was terrified. I was like, I remember I started with a few nuts, a little bit of avocado. I was, and, and then I started really looking at what I was eating and I was eating these low fat products that had just and then I found the hidden sugars. So I'd cut out the obvious sugars, and then I found the hidden sugars in these low-fat products, which made me even even angrier. I think there was a, I think it was a lecture by Jeffrey Bland that I'd went to, and he was talking about the importance of this whole foods. One of the pioneers and, of uh, the functional medicine movement, and yeah. on the board of IFM, uh, we have a really great interview with him that we did on Mark's podcast, The Doctor's Pharmacy. If anybody wants to uh, learn more about him. Oh, I will definitely go listen to that one. So he used to come to the UK and lecture for uh, one of the companies, one of the supplement companies here. So I would always go. It was a three, I think it was two or three day lectures. And uh, Deanna also came. Deanna Munich also came. Love her. Um, so, yeah, amazing. It's like really amazing people to draw inspiration and learn from. And um, I love their work. So um, I remember he was talking about the whole foods and how, you know, and giving us case studies of people that he had helped and people that had gone through these programs and it was mind-blowing exactly what you said there I was thinking but why doesn't everyone know this and I think that was also a fear factor like hang on a sec there's only a small group of people that know this so is it right so you second guess a lot of things um, and I think that's how you grow and expand and, and learn as well and, so, and while, um, while you were going to these lectures and you're making things were, were you seeing slow changes show up inside of your body yes so now I was instead of not having a period, I was menstruating. Wow. So, you know, I'd also increase my protein and real protein, not just eating these processed. Um, so I guess the Italian part of me, salami, prosciutto, you know, 
eating a lot of them, but I was eating, starting to eat like proper protein and not just buying these ready meals and sticking them in the microwave, actually cooking food from scratch and actually got rid of the microwave completely. So we don't even have one now, but, um, and starting to eat these foods. So these good fats and these proteins and increasing my vegetables and you know I was finding recipes and creating recipes so that rest that the vegetables didn't just taste bland and boiled and just unappetizing and I started realizing that hang on if there's fat in the food there's actually flavor to the food so um these were real aha moments for me but the things that were happening within my body was I wasn't constipated anymore that was major I didn't have insomnia well, I didn't have as much of insomnia. It didn't all just disappear in, in right in the beginning. Um, my headaches were less. And I was talking, like, I used to call it the helmet of pain. I used to wake, walk around with a constant headache. And I started menstruating. So at first, you know, it was every 60 days, but it actually got down to around every 35 to 32 days, which is normal for me. And my weight started stabilizing. So I actually dropped 20 kilos in total. Because I'd put on so much weight when I went through that binge eating period. And you um, mentioned a couple things and just want to insert some teachables inside mm. of there for people that are following along. Um, constipation. What was mm. going on in your lifestyle previously that you look back on now and when you advise your clients that was contributing to that constipation? And then what did you do? You know, What were some of the things that relieved that constipation? Because mm. so many people struggle with constipation. I see this in clinic all the time. And, you know, if you had spoken to me back in my 18, 19, 20s, I'd be like, this is normal. But now when a lady or a man sits in front of me and they tell me they only go once or twice a week, but they're just getting older. So that's normal for getting older. No, it's not. You know, then this is where we need to be looking at gut health because Hippocrates that said, you know, that all disease begins in the colon. So that's where disease begins. That's where health begins as well. So we need to look at making sure that we're eliminating properly. And what was going on for me when I look back, you know, that hindsight being so wonderful, is I was using coffee as a laxative. As many people do. As many people do, absolutely. And, you know, I don't know how long my thyroid was waning and before it went into full underactive thyroid. You know, I don't know how long that period of Hashimoto's was going on because I wasn't aware of it at that stage. I didn't understand that those were some of the symptoms. And um, so I don't know how long that constipation was there, but what was lacking or what I was having at that time was high sugar, high caffeine. And what was lacking at that stage was fiber. Mm. So vegetables. I thought I was eating enough vegetables, but, you know, just a few slices of tomato on my sandwich at lunch, that's not veggies. You know, you need to be eating your greens. Our grannies and our, our parents were absolutely right with that because of that fiber that we need. And that fiber is really important for many things. It helps us to have a proper stool function. So it fluffs out the stool and it helps with peristalsis, but it also feeds the good bacteria in the gut. I call them my eco-warriors. These are the, the microbiome, the good guys that actually, again, they help with, with the formation of stool and the passing of stool, but they help us to absorb our nutrients. And if we're not eliminating, then we're reabsorbing toxins and we're also reabsorbing hormones like estrogen, for example. So that was constipation. And mm. what about some of the deeper issues that you were dealing with and some of the deeper symptoms? You talked about headaches, you talked about constipation, mm. you got your period back. What about like the energy and then yeah. some of the diagnosable diseases that you were diagnosed with and some of the symptoms that were associated with that? Did you start to notice any changes with those? 
Absolutely. If I tell you that I was walking around in like a brain fog haze, then if you were speaking to me back then, I wouldn't have been able to be having this conversation with you because I would have lost my way. I would have lost my train of thought, lost my words. And so I definitely started feeling this shift, almost feeling like you get your spark back. It sounds cliched and like, oh, get your vitality back. You know, you get those adverts. And but it's true, you actually get this spark back. This life force seems to come back from somewhere because things are starting to balance out. And especially when you start lifting that thyroid fog and when you start balancing your hormones so that that insulin and that testosterone can come into balance again. What age were you at this time? I'm probably going 32, 33 now, where these major changes are starting to happen. I um, And I know you've been very transparent about the fact that you had experienced, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, a miscarriage yeah. at this time. Had you already experienced that? So at this stage, I had met a guy and I still had crippling pains with periods of pain. I couldn't get out of bed and... He came to me with tea and a hot water bottle and he said to me, I've just Googled how to help you get through this. And I thought, okay, I need to marry you. So I married him. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it really helped me also in my practice because at that stage I'd already qualified and I was starting to practice. And um, it helped me actually think that I really need to help men understand what the women are going through as well. And I feel like we, we really need to, that we all need to be in the know with these things and so we decided we'd start trying for a family and at this stage I didn't actually even pinpoint where I was ovulating and I think this is an important thing with polycystic ovaries or with hormonal imbalance is that you may not be textbook ovulating on day 14 so if you are just aiming for around that time if you're not ovulating at that time you may miss your fertile window in any case but that that's just one thing one piece of the puzzle but I really struggled to fall pregnant And by this stage, I felt like I had done so much work. And then I fell pregnant, which was amazing. And unfortunately, I miscarried nine weeks later. And well, first of all, it's the most horrible experience. I look back on it with gratitude and I wrote a blog about that immediately or soon after because I really felt grateful that my body knew what it needed to do and that I was able to fall pregnant. And it also was a bit of a catalyst even more of a catalyst to help other women go through, to help them if they're going through the same. And I realized something when I shared that story because women were writing to me, thanking me for sharing it because they'd been going through suffering in silence, going through this in silence. The hormonal storm that comes postpartum or with the miscarriage, you need to be doing some work to really balance your hormones during that phase as well. So I I took a lot of time out from, I said to my husband, we need to wait. I need to just work on my body again. I think fear also held me back. And I did a lot of gut work and hormonal work again. And we fell pregnant again and then miscarried after five weeks. So um, I had two miscarriages, unfortunately. But third time lucky, we had our little rainbow baby a year and a half ago. Mm. I fell pregnant for the third time. And this time I carried almost full term. Unfortunately, my placenta decided at around 37 weeks that it, that it was finished with its job. So um, I was induced at 38 weeks. But I have this beautiful baby girl and I'm so grateful. Yeah, she is a beautiful baby girl. I've seen some photos she's of her so online. Cute. She's cute, hey? She's, she's cute. very cute. Yeah. And I want to you know, just, I think a big part of what's happening just worldwide in so many different topics, whether it's trauma, whether it's sexual abuse, whether it's these things, so many people 
have lived through these different experiences, whether mm. it be, you know, miscarriages, and nobody talked about it before because we were raised mm. in a society that said, don't talk about it, and it's not okay to talk about it, or just nobody talked about it because nobody was talking about it. And I think that uh, exactly. I want to applaud you for really bringing light to the conversation. I think the, the unique thing that's also there is that it's a delicate balance because on the one end, you're a trained nutritionist who knows that if the body is miscarrying, there's so many different components that can go mm. into it, but there's things that we can do to support it. Yeah. But it's a fine line because you don't want to also scold women and tell them that they're doing something wrong and this is why this is happening. You want to empower them and you want to exactly. have an educated conversation about the fact of, hey, listen, this isn't anybody's fault. These things happen. A lot of people have gone through it, even sometimes for people who are quote unquote perfectly healthy or think that they're perfectly healthy. But mm. let's actually talk about what's happening in the body so that if we can make some tweaks, it could potentially help out. So, you know, speaking from a place of empowerment, what mm -hmm. is some information that you might want to share? You know, you had mentioned that you did a few different things. You did a, a gut program. You, mm -hmm. It sounds like there were some emotional components that were yeah. you were working on. What were some of the things that you did and why did you choose to do those things in relationship to the, the miscarriages that you had? Um, I think what you said there is so important. I think that we, we, we blame ourselves and uh, we don't speak about it because for some reason, when you hit that 12 week mark, that's when you're only allowed to speak about your pregnancy. I want to smash through that taboo. I let my friends know from the beginning because I want them there in the good times and I need them there in the bad times if there are bad times. Just touching wood here. I'm so Greek. I needed to touch some wood. But I think that the first thing that I did was I allowed myself to grieve and you know, it's not just another period. As soon as you know that you're pregnant, there's a shift in your body. I don't know. You know, for me, it doesn't matter how early you miscarry. Once you know, you know. And I think that, you know, you need to be really kind with yourself and you need to allow yourself that time to grieve and to heal and repair. And the reason why I did a lot of gut work around that time is because I decided I wanted to, to really investigate what was going on. So I have low progesterone genetically low progesterone whether that's coming from polycystic ovaries I'm not sure but I have low progesterone so I wanted to do everything that I could to really support the whole menstrual cycle that I have and you know gut function is really important for our hormonal health and so I did a stool test and I also did an organic acid test that's where we're looking at our urine to look at um, how things are metabolized in the body so that we can see if we're lacking in in certain things or if we have too many of other things and what it came back with at that time is that I did have dysbiosis in the gut and I had an elevation of something called beta-glucuronidase which is a bacteria in the gut and when that bacteria is elevated it can actually lead to more hormonal imbalances. I am trying to word this so that it makes the most sense in the most simplest terms because you know do we need to be walking around talking about beta-glucuronidase but what it does is it actually unhinges this packaged up hormones to re remove from the body. So it unhinges estrogen that's been spent estrogen that's been packaged up by the liver. It actually unhinges it. So that's whizzing around in the body as well. So I had an elevation of that. So I wanted to, to really restore my eco warriors in the gut. I wanted to work on my gut health 
the next thing that I wanted to do was to really look at what was going on with that progesterone and how I could support that in my cycle and how I could keep my cycle balanced because, you know, post miscarriage, the hormonal storm that comes with that, my skin broke out, my periods were irregular, my emotions were all over the place, the headaches were back. So uh, it took me back to to that place, pre-hormonal balanced place. I mean, you'll never be, I don't know if I'll ever be fully balanced, but, you know, to the place that I had got, what I call my hormonal freedom area. And I also, you know, when we're looking at what miscarriage is, it's very difficult to say what it can be. And it's natural, natural selection in the sense that if there's something wrong with the DNA, the body will naturally abort where it can. So, you know, I, I hold on to the fact that it was something that was happening with the DNA and I really wanted, it was really, um, that's why I say it. So I'm trying to choose my words carefully here and I feel like I'm babbling a bit, so I apologize. But no, I, no, no. Um, I think that uh, you know, you're getting some perspective and it's so complicated and there's so much we don't know about the body and there's we're just all trying to do our best and it's an individual yeah. thing and every woman's going to be different, every couple's going to yeah. be different. And what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that you know, miscarriages is is a natural thing. It's not something that immediately we have to deem as like something having been wrong. So sometimes the yeah. body may have this deeper intuition if it doesn't have the right resources or the right conditions to take a baby fully through the process of mm. all the way to giving birth. It might have an intelligence that we don't understand. And at the same time too, there's other things that you were doing that there's research behind to try to support creating the conditions that are most favorable. That doesn't always mean exactly. that somebody will get pregnant. That doesn't always mean that somebody will stay pregnant. It could still mean mm. that somebody has a miscarriage, but we're trying to set up the odds in the body's favor, which aren't just good for the baby. They're good for the mother's overall health. Absolutely. And that's where I was also, also my husband, I had him on a, on a protocol. I called it his super sperm protocol. Because I said to him, look, we, you're bringing 50% to the party, but my 50% is coming with Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, hypothyroidism, polycystic ovaries. I need your 50% to be sparkly. <laughs> so, um, and, I'm so glad, and I'm so glad you brought that up because so much of the conversation obviously is focused on the woman. And I've even read, we'll see if we can find it and include in the show notes that modern day, so much of the infertility is way more what's happening with the man and what's happening with his sperm and his diet and his yeah. other stuff. And it's like, this is a mutual conversation. So if your husband's Absolutely. around, just bring him into the podcast. We'll interview him along with you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, he's not here. I would have done that. <laughs> so, so but he's so, he's so open to it as well. And I, I find that when I'm working with couples in clinic that, that sometimes that the man hasn't gone through all the testing and I really feel that if you're going through a fertility journey that you both need to go through all the testing and all the screening that you can and it takes three months to uh, mature an egg and three months to mature the sperm as well so you can both be working I say it takes 12 months to make a baby three months prep nine months bake so um, you know you need to be doing some work beforehand as well especially if you if you've been struggling through the fertility journey. But there's a lot of research that also shows that we need these the nutrients. And um, I call it Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin. Bitcoin is... You call it Bitcoin? Yeah, Bitcoin. Like the Bitcoin out there, like the, the cryptocurrency? Exactly. I mean, have you ever seen it? No, no one's ever seen Bitcoin, but we trade in it and it's really valuable. 
And that's what nutrients are in the body. We don't actually see the nutrients, but our body trades in it all the time. And if we're not getting in the steady stream of nutrients, then our Bitcoin uh, shares are going to go right down. And so by making sure that we're getting in these nutrients on a daily basis, that is part of the puzzle in helping you to have, to get pregnant, to stay pregnant. So ensuring that we get these nutrients in is really important, but our lifestyle plays a massive role in that as well. And I feel that that was a piece that still wasn't quite there for me at that stage. As I was going through this fertility journey, I still was burning the candle at both ends. I, I feel like we do that as therapists and running our own business. Um, I, I didn't set any boundaries for myself. And staring at the blue screen late into the night, you know, the research is showing what a knock-on effect that's having on hormonal health and our circadian rhythm. So all of that really plays an important role as well. I want to come back to your husband. You mentioned, you know, mm. a, a lot of uh, couples that come in to see you and they're thinking about fertility and spending time in that area. It's important for the, the husband to get a test. Um, obviously, you know, you know so much about this and your husband was very willing. Did you test him? And then what was the, I'm going to just repeat what you said, the super sperm protocol that you put your <laughs> husband on? Bless him. He went through everything. And, All you know, it's not all the testing and it's not a great experience for the man i get it it's quite stressful and so you know we came back and and for him his uh, sperm count was great and everything you know i'd like to you know when we're talking about sperm you know that we wanted to have a good tail so to have a good whip to get up there and the right size head and you know for him luckily everything was looking really good there. However, that didn't stop me from thinking we need to work on your sperm, especially at the fact that it takes every three months we've got a new batch coming in. <laughs> I'm thinking of it as food. You know, we're busy prepping here for this nine-month bake that we're about to do. I tested his vitamin D. That was it. And I was shocked that his vitamin D was low. Here he is living with a nutritionist. And right under my nose, my husband's vitamin D is low. And he is a software developer. And for him, if he could sit in a dark room writing code all day, he said that to me once, if I could write code all day and then just come home to spend the evening with you, that would be his ideal day. <laughs> so, um, you know, so getting him out into the sun, he's quite fair skinned as well. You know, it was, it's just not his thing, but his vitamin D was low. So he was on vitamin D supplements. He enjoys the foods that we eat. So, you know, if I haven't made salad one night, he'd ask me, oh, where's the salad? So, you know, he's, he's actively, when I met him, he was, all about the fast foods and now he's like his parents always say wow your taste buds have changed so much so um he ate really well and then he took a little bag of supplements with him to work every day and just talk about vitamin d for just a quick second mm. um you know people hear vitamin they just think oh it's like a nutrient vitamin but what's the relationship with vitamin d and and our our just overall body and our hormones and other areas like how mm. explain why it's so much more important than a lot of people realize so I think we're just learning so much more about vitamin D all the time. And um, I, 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 I find it really exciting. There's a lot of research around it. And it's, and it's showing that it has a lot of links with autoimmune conditions, with bone health, with hormonal health. And there's research that's showing that about 85% of women with polycystic ovaries may be deficient in vitamin D as well. But it's important for egg health. It's important for sperm health. So if we're looking at all those areas, we need to really make sure that we're having this optimal vitamin D. But it's also important for brain health. So, you know, it just carries on. The, the whole area around vitamin D is really exciting. And I feel that it's such an easy test 
to test for as well. It's a nutrient that we can increase with supplementation, but then you can also go out into the sunlight as well during certain times of the month and then also including some vitamin D rich foods in your diet. However, they're not, you need to be eating quite a lot of them to be getting good amounts of vitamin D. Were there any other key components that you were focused on in what I've heard you call your your third attempt or third time lucky? Yeah, absolutely. It was my third attempt and I thought, you know, what else could I do? And uh, for me, it was two things, two things added to that. And the first was to prioritize sleep. We get so wound up in modern life and, you know, work fills every space that we'll give it. And I was just working till all hours of the night and not prioritizing my sleep. So that was the one thing. And sleep is essential. Sleep is essential for brain function, for hormonal function. And um, I knew that especially with conditions like polycystic ovaries and hypothyroidism, that I needed to do what I could do to balance these hormones. And one of the best things I could do was to actually just go to sleep at night. So that was the one thing. And the other was to start a proper exercise routine. And I remember in the first pregnancy, I didn't prioritize exercise. It wasn't something that was a non-negotiable in the diary. And with that, I also saw when I did start exercising that it had a positive effect on my cycle length, my periods. And so that was just a catalyst for me to really dive deep into the literature, have a look at what exercise can do for you, especially with polycystic ovaries. And I made it a non-negotiable. So that meant it was an appointment in the diary and there was just no change in that appointment. And I was really fortunate. I had a gym down the road, which was a personal trainer's gym. And so I worked one-on-one with someone. And I'm going to just put my hand up now. I think I'm innately quite lazy. And I need someone to basically be telling me what to do the whole time. And for me, that really worked. And I was in the position to be able to go and see this person three times a week. And I really feel that that benefited me. So I'm not saying that everyone needs to work with a personal trainer. But I think if you are the type of person that needs a program, then you need to at least consult with one or go into your gym and have one of those sessions with the personal trainers and get a program that you can stick to because that was really important for me. I needed to something that I could do that I knew I could stick to. So it was not too long after that, those sort of final pieces and including everything else that you were doing that you got some news. Tell us about what that was like and where you were and what was going on in your life and just what emotional state you were in, especially with you being so open and honest about the past miscarriages that you have. Give us a little insight on what you were thinking and when you heard the news. I tell you what, I've got like this goofy smile on my face right now because I was actually in the gym. (laughs) So I was in the gym working out and I'd had the second miscarriage a few months before that. I think it was two months before that. And a lady came into the gym and she was about, I'd say about eight months pregnant. And she was a boxer and she was actually boxing pregnant. And then a client of mine walked in, a fertility client of mine, and she had the most beautiful baby bump. So she'd fallen pregnant and she was about six or seven months pregnant already. And I saw these two strong, beautiful women pregnant and I felt so happy for them. And at the same time, I suddenly felt so sad for myself and I started crying while I was peddling doing my my little hit session with my PT and he was like what's wrong with you and I was like oh I can't get this basic thing right of birthing a child I just can't get that right and I just have to go so I walked out the gym 
you know, feeling it, it was quite a weird thing because I was really happy. I was happy for my client. I helped her get pregnant. I was happy for the lady that was there boxing away with her beautiful bump. And at the same time, I felt this like immense sadness for myself. And I think, I think I'm not alone in that. I think many women feel this. But I decided, I was like, why am I so emotional? I'm going to go get a pregnancy test. There's no way that I'm pregnant, but I'm going to go get the test. Anyway, I got the test and it turns out I was pregnant. Wow. Yeah, so it was just like, I remember I took a selfie with the pregnancy test and sent it to all my family. And like I'm like, oh my God, I'm pregnant again, third time lucky. And and during that same period of time, I mean, you know, you've already talked a lot about like letting go of expectations and all this great work. Mm. I'm sure, did you feel both excited and also was there a sense of, what if this works out or doesn't work out? Was there any bit of that? There was loads of that. I think that I was so excited. And I remember thinking, okay, I needed to book in for the, an early pregnancy scan. And I just started getting really ready with those type of things because I've got genetically low progesterone. So I wanted to make sure my progesterone was supported at that stage. And all those things were happening. And then I also realized that when those people say, you know, like, try not to stress about getting pregnant, but you just want to punch them as someone that's trying to conceive. You're just like, please stop saying these things to me. And I realized that the time that I wasn't focused on it that much was the time that I felt pregnant. So that was a bit of a mind blow for me. And I set off to, to go and see my uh, gynae, to go get my early pregnancy scan, to check the progesterone levels. And I probably went for too many scans, but I was really worried Um I get cramps all the way through my pregnancies. And so, you know, I kept having these cramps. I always thought, oh, no, I'm miscarrying. So I went through this whole pregnancy quite anxious and at the same time really enjoying being pregnant. I loved being pregnant. But then I also had anemia, so I was really exhausted. And But I loved being pregnant. Now, at the same time, while you're going through this pregnancy, in your second miscarriage, you started writing a book. And so you were both birthing a child and birthing a a book at the same time. Tell us about the book and how that process was and what your goal was with writing that book. I really feel like the book is an extension of myself. It is, it's a book on hormonal balance. It's a lifestyle and diet approach to balancing hormones. And it's everything that I needed to do for myself. And it's everything that I do with my clients in clinic. And I was given this amazing opportunity to publish a beautiful book that I could reach so many people. And so I started writing the book and I fell pregnant for the second time. And I was like, wow, what an ending to this book. And and then I had the miscarriage and I thought, oh, God, how can I actually write this book? So major imposter syndrome came in there. And I really had to just really refocus. And, you know, my, my whole journey is... It's testament that it doesn't always go textbook. It's not always going to plan. And um, and that life isn't all about this perfection. And I'm not this absolutely hormonally balanced woman telling you what to do. I'm actually someone that's going through it as well. So um, I really zoned in on that part of it and, and really wrote from the heart the whole book. And then I fell pregnant again. And so I was writing this book and going through the different stages of pregnancies and going through these hormonal changes and these hormonal fluxes and this fatigue. And, you know, I was just like at the same time, I was thinking this is amazing because this is what you go through with hormonal imbalance. So I'm really feeling it as I'm writing it. And I think that that's that honesty, that story, that everything you've gone through 
it really truly makes you more relatable. You know, you've been through every emotion, you've been through every component, you've been through everything that's mm-hmm. there, you've experienced all the feelings, and it just that's so much more real. So jumping a little bit in the into the future, you had a healthy mm. baby girl. I had a healthy baby girl. She's almost two. She's twenty months. I never knew I was going to be that mum that counted in months. And yeah, it was honestly the most amazing experience. And she was born early. So I went through that whole expectation of doing a water birth and omming while I birthed my child. And I ended up having to be induced. And thank God I got an epidural. So, you know, for a nutritionist, that's (laughs) all about the least amounts of toxins you can have in your body. I was, yeah, give me the drugs because this is really sore. Thank goodness for modern medicine. Absolutely. I was just, I mean, I've written many posts about my idea of arming through this childbirth and then thank God I got an epidural uh, because with uh, induction, it like takes you from zero to a hundred in, in two contractions. So it's not, not easy for someone like me with a low pain threshold. Yeah, I got this beautiful little girl and, you know, she's taught us so much, even though she's been here for such a short time only, you know, she's already taught us so much. Incredible. And, and talk about the process of, of your book And, you know, when did your book come out? And, you know, you were celebrating, obviously, a child, way bigger deal than a book, but a book also beautiful because it's sort of (laughs) symbolic of this journey that you uh, went through. Uh, When did your book come out? So my book came out last July and, uh, oh, no, last June. They're both with a J, aren't they? So um, last June. And uh, so she was born in Feb and then the book came out in June. And I really felt like I had birthed a baby and then birthed a book. It was incredible. And uh, it's been so well received. And I'm just so grateful that people are able to read it and that they're gaining volumes from it, which was my, when you write, was an intention. And it was definitely my intention to be able to, to give women this piece of information that they can translate into their own lives and that it works with modern life. And that was a real big one for me, because as I said before, you know, I've been on the side of perfectionism and then I've been on the other side of just not giving a damn and just going wild and and then going through binge eating disorders as well you know so I've been on on either side and what we need to find is this balance and how it needs to fit in with your life otherwise you start becoming obsessed about it or perfectionist over it yeah and the book is called the balance plan as you mentioned earlier people can find it on Amazon and a bunch of other places you know it's really great and it covers a lot of what we've talked about over here and goes deeper in other topics that we haven't covered now since your baby being there uh, being mm. successfully, you know, having a daughter and the book being out there, you've continued this conversation around women and health, mm. even though you write for both men and women, you know, you're writing your perspective, you're writing your point of view. And one of the things that just happened this past week, it was World Mental Health Day. And yeah. you've talked about on social media, bef- on social media prior about the importance of postpartum because it was something that you suffered. I would love you to just touch on that for a little bit and talk mm. about this this period and what's important for families to know about postpartum and brain health and mental health. Absolutely. And um, the uh, there's so many different components to it as well, but I feel like we don't really speak about it enough. So again, it's another thing that I just want to smash through this taboo of, I think we, we see it in the movies, we may see it in magazines where people have a child and two to three months later, they're skipping down the street looking absolutely fabulous and you know like they've got all this energy they're fitting back into their genes and you just think oh that's how it's meant to be 
it's not like that. I mean, there's, there are a select few that are just bounce back. Everything goes absolutely perfect, but it takes a lot out of you to birth a child. And, you know, you use a lot of reserves and you're breastfeeding, you're using a lot of energy, a lot of nutrients again, and you, you're running on very little sleep and you are quite in a complete hormonal storm. I call it the hormonal shit storm. And it's just like everything's happening at once. And you don't quite, well, I think the first three months were an absolute blur. I mean, I have these beautiful photos where I'm like, thank God I took so many photos because you're just so focused on getting through the day and making sure your baby's okay and still trying to sleep and still trying to eat that it just, it just goes in a blur. But I feel that now that I've been through it and, and, you know, hindsight is amazing, as I've said before, I really know that we need to nourish ourselves during this period and we actually need to give ourselves some time and you don't need to bounce back and you don't need to be looking all pristine and all doled up all the time you can actually stay in your pjs with your hair in a mum bun and just be in this newborn bubble Mm. it's such an important topic and it was great to see how many people i think world mental health day just put a spotlight on all the important topics around mental health but i think for Mm. women and postpartum, it's such a topic that uh, it doesn't often as easily get as much attention as the other things that can affect mental health because I think for a lot of women, it sort of hits them by surprise, even though it's something that a lot of people deal with, it um, wasn't as frequently talked about. And I see it being talked about a lot more by people like yourself, um, Dr. Maggie Nay, who's an incredible naturopathic Mm -hmm. doctor who we just did an interview with, on postpartum and um, I want to thank you really for for putting attention on it and having an honest conversation about it I think that um, I'm so pleased that I'm able to use my social media platform for those type of things as well the day after World Mental Health Awareness Day I posted a photo of Isabella and I so my daughter and I and it's a really cute photo we're twinning in little dungaree dresses and you know when you look at that photo it's so super cute and then these insecurities still pop in. I'm like, oh my God, look at my mum tum. You know, um, I was exhausted there. You can see how tired I am. And I think that's, a lot of us go through that, but we're just starting to internalize. We internalize it too much and we need to actually speak to someone because it really affects our mental health. Mm -hmm. And another thing I just want to say, like you need to ask for help and don't be afraid to ask for help as well because I was really concerned about being seen that I was complaining when Isabella was born, because I had worked so hard to get her and I'd waited so long for her. And how could I possibly now say that I'm tired? Mm. It's such a silly thing, you know, when I'm saying it out loud. And I remember once I posted on social media, I said, oh, I'm, I'm exhausted. And the comments I got back was like, oh, don't complain. It, everything, it goes so fast. And I was thinking, oh, God, I'm not complaining. I'm just letting you know that I'm exhausted. So I stopped. Yeah, both can be equally it. true. Yeah, exactly. I was exhausted. She was born at a really low weight. So um, we had to wake, well, not a rich, was a 2.5 kg. So I had to wake her every two to three hours to eat when she was first born. I was awake all the time. (laughs) When do you go to sleep? So I was tired. And, you know, I stopped saying it because I thought, oh, God, maybe, you know, I shouldn't be complaining. And then my sister came to visit me one day and she looked at the mum mess that I was in and she was like, you know, you don't have to do it all. You can ask for help. And that was like the floodgate had just opened there. And I remember I called my mum. I'm like, I'm struggling to make good food. Can you can you make food again and we can freeze it? Because that's what she did in the, right in the beginning. 
So my mum was on my cooking duties and my sister was coming around and I was taking some naps. And I know we're not, I'm really fortunate that I have them so close to me and they were able to do that. But, you know, reach out to your tribe, reach out to your friends, whoever can help during that postpartum time. Because if you're not feeling your best, then you're not at your best. So, so true. Um, and it's not a criticism at all. And it's not, you know, I, it's just because I've been there. I get it. I mean, I still there some days where I'm just like, wow, I'm so exhausted. But we have these these tribes around us. You know, we have friends, we have family and just reaching out to them and saying, I need some help. It might be hard in the beginning, but once you get used to that and you get starting starting to get that help, you'll see how much it helps you. And then you can be an even better mum. It's so true. I feel like some of the important themes that we've talked about here in the interview are letting go, reaching out for help, being mm-hmm. gentle, you know, letting go of expectations, all these key components in addition to the practical stuff that we can do to actually impact our health are just so important because I was talking about this with um, our dear mutual friend, uh, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, you know, mm. he said at the end of the day, and his new book is Stress Solution, all about stress and emotions. And I can't else. wait for it. I know. Can't I can't wait. wait there. You know, he's like, I have found that even if people are eating right and doing the right thing or anything, emotions are the most powerful thing. Mm. And so if those are not taken care of appropriately, if we don't think about our mental health, if we don't think about these deeper beliefs that are driving constant energy through our thoughts into our body, we can still be suffering even though on paper if we're doing quote-unquote the right things yeah absolutely and it's, it's something that i talk about in the book as well i say you know the message of stress overrides our other messages in the body and that's a very simple way of looking at it but it's at a top level you know stress is there to get us out of danger's way you don't need to be digesting you don't need to be absorbing you just need to be getting out of danger's way so if we stay in this chronic stress state then it's having a major knock-on effect, mental health, hormonal health, digestion. Yes, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with us. You know, we have a lot of listeners all over, both in the U.S. and the U.K. Obviously, you work a lot with patients, uh, with people directly. Can you just Mm. chat a little bit about what it's like to work with you and how people can find out more about you and get the chance to engage with you as a client if they wanted to? Amazing. Yes, thank you. So I'm based in London and um, I have a a clinic here where you could come see me one-to-one or I do Skype. So I've got clients all over the world, actually, which is amazing. So, you know, modern technology helps us to reach more people. But remember, you can't be on it all night. I'll just put that little part in there again. So, yeah, working with me, you can work with me one-to-one. I do group work as well and I do talks. But you can find me on social media or on my website, which is just angeliquepanagos.com. Incredible. Angelique, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your journey. Thank you for having me. Thank you for really going into detail and walking us through the experience because I think that there's something that you shared earlier, which is so true. The path is hardly ever, you know, point A to point B. It's up mm-hmm. and down and round and about. And if somebody's listening who's going through it, I hope you can relate to Angelique's story that to just keep moving forward and making little bouts of progress and doing it in support with your community, because that's really all we have at the end of the day on our path to uh, health. Absolutely. And I just wanted to say, Drew, I am so grateful to be here with you today and 
that um, I absolutely love your work and you know I feel like you give so much and you know, all your videos and I'm just really grateful that you're out there and that you are doing your thing and so thanks so much. Oh, I appreciate it. Angelique, thank you for joining us in the Broken Brain Podcast. We look forward to talking to you soon. Great, thanks. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health. 